Recognizing and Loving the Body, originally ministered Sunday, October 8, 2023, in the Wisconsin Fellowship. Communion is a celebration of the oneness shared by those who claim membership in Christ's body. Those joined together in this covenant commitment are collectively called the Bride of Christ in Scripture. The Lord illuminates this when He declares to Zion through the prophet Isaiah, You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate. But you shall be called, My delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. These promises foretell the Messiah, His future kingdom, and those who will be brought to birth through His coming. Isaiah continues, Your children will commit themselves to you, O Jerusalem, just as a young man commits himself to his bride. Then your God will rejoice over you as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride. An interesting equation has just been presented. First, we have the children of Zion committing themselves to Zion, and then we see God making a covenant commitment to Zion. This illustration reveals how the church, Zion, comes into a covenant relationship with her heavenly husband and how her children, you and I, must commit ourselves to the church. It is clear in the New Testament that the church is Zion because Hebrews 12 declares, you have not come to a mountain that can be touched and to a blazing whirlwind and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words, but you have come to Mount Zion. The author is speaking to New Testament believers and he tells them they have already come to Mount Zion. He is not referring to a physical temple, for he says, at the beginning, the mountain cannot be touched. Instead, he declares that believers have come to, quote, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, whose names are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all, and to Jesus. This demonstrates the church is, in fact, the heavenly Jerusalem, a place that people can come to while still on earth. Moreover, coming to the church is equivalent to coming to the throne of God because the bride and the groom are one. In Revelations 21, John portrays the church as the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. This is Revelations 21 and 2. Some may imagine a physical city descending from the heaven with the help of parachutes or some other spectacular means, but that cannot be what the author intended. In Galatians, Paul explains that the church is already the mother of us all, Jerusalem from above, Galatians 4.26. The heavenly descent described in Revelations symbolizes the manner of wisdom that marks this new Jerusalem that comes from above. James tells us that there are two types of wisdom, one from above and one from below. The Tower of Babel typifies and symbolizes the one from below, man's attempt to ascend to the heavens through his own cleverness. The other kind of wisdom from above is revealed from heaven, as when Moses went up on the mountain and came back with the law of Yahweh. It is not concocted 
concluded or achieved through the pride or grasping of human prowess. It is a revelation descending from God as a gift to mankind. It is not calculated, but comes down from God like the stone tablets. When John mentions Jerusalem descending in Revelations 21, he is not referring to a three-dimensional city that we will physically relocate to. Instead, he is talking about a people united by the wisdom that comes from God. This fulfills Christ's prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He begins by acknowledging that our Father is in heaven, and then he asks that his kingdom come on earth. He indicates that this will occur as God's will is done on earth, a will revealed and expressed through the Holy Spirit according to the form of wisdom that descends from above. Through this, the heavenly realm is realized on earth. From the beginning, God envisioned salvation corporately. The Jews of the Old Covenant did not see themselves as saved individuals, but as part of a people, the people of God. Their unity with God and with one another was the cornerstone of the Old Covenant. At the outset of his journey, Abraham was known as Abram, meaning exalted father. However, God renamed him Abraham, signifying father of many nations. This change marked a transition in his identity from an individual seeking to fulfill God's purpose for his life to becoming the patriarch of a multitude, a community of peoples. When God established a covenant with Abraham, he gave him two mandates. First, he commanded Abraham, walk before me and be blameless. God did not intend for Abraham to remain stagnant. Instead, he called him to embark on a progressive journey of faith. Similarly, Paul in Romans 4 refers to New Covenant believers, the church, as Abraham's offspring, urging us to continue walking in the, quote, footsteps of faithful Abraham. God's second command to Abraham concerned the rite of circumcision, highlighting its importance by declaring any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Thus, to break the covenant with God was to be ostracized from the people of God, the place of salvation. This theme of corporate salvation is further illustrated with the Mosaic Covenant, where again, breaking the covenant meant exclusion from the community. Like Abraham, Moses did not promote an individualistic doctrine. God's purpose for Moses was to lead the community of God's people out of Egypt. When the Israelites sinned, the angel of the Lord, a manifestation of God's authority, stood poised to obliterate them. Yet Moses, foreshadowing Jesus, acted as an intercessor to avert the people's imminent destruction. We see this corporate view of salvation continued in Paul's writing. Paul didn't present Jesus as the first actor on the scene of salvation, nor did he portray Jesus' sacrifice on the cross as the starting point of the salvation saga. Instead, Paul emphasized the importance of the community of God in his message of salvation. 
Many today believe that Jesus made an anomalous appearance on the pages of history, loved each individual, and thus died for their sins. While this perception isn't entirely inaccurate, it fails to provide a complete picture of how the first Christians would have perceived Jesus. Yes, Christ's love was powerfully focused on individuals, and it ministers to us individually. But Paul and the early apostles saw Christ as the realization of the promises made by God to Abraham millennia before. Jesus did not appear in a vacuum as a detached figure. Instead, he came as the culmination of a long journey unfolding for centuries prior. The theme persists in the book of Hebrews when it says, By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking ahead to his reward. It's critical that the writer here equates Christ with the reproach of the people of God. When Moses said, I want to be part of the people, the writer of Hebrews heard that as saying, I want to be one with Christ. As the adopted son of Pharaoh's daughter, Moses had the status of a prince. Yet he chose not to be identified as the son of Pharaoh's daughter, eschewing this royal identity bestowed by Egypt to instead align himself with the people, the community of God, and embrace their disgrace and destiny. In Colossians 2, Paul draws a parallel between circumcision, which signifies entry into the Old Covenant, and baptism, which signifies initiation into the New Covenant. Colossians 2, verse 10 through 14. Just as Moses opted to endure hardship with God's people rather than enjoy Egypt's wealth, baptism symbolizes our rejection of worldly patterns and assimilation as we willingly bear the reproach of Zion. Paul said, It is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. A Christian's faith, in other words, connects him to the oath God made to Abraham, the oath of salvation and promise. Seeing ahead to the justification of the Gentiles by faith, God proclaimed the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Genesis 22.18 Those who are of faith, then, are joined to the blessing of Abraham, the father of our faith. They become part of the promises of the Old Testament. They become part of the continuous community of believers. Later, Paul says, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Galatians 3, 26 through 29. Paul has just explained that this promise was made to Abraham and to his seed. And that seed refers not to many, but to one, which Paul says is Christ. Who then 
are God's covenant people, according to Paul? Are they those who entered the covenant through the law or those who were in covenant before the law? The sons of Abraham are those who are united to the same covenant of faith that God first made with him, that which preceded the law. Those who believe in the same manner that Abraham did, those whose faith provokes them to action, will be those who inherit the promise. But it is significant that Paul says that Jesus is the singular heir, seed of Abraham and his promise. But then he tells us that if we have clothed ourselves with Christ, we, plural, are that seed. So the church is Christ. The church is inseparably identified with the Lord. It becomes the heir, just as he said about the individual Lord Jesus. Paul says in Romans 9, quote, But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, for they are not all Israel who are of Israel, nor are they all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. That is, those who are the children of the flesh are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. For this is the word of promise. At that time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. It is clear from this passage that the Lord's visitation caused Sarah to conceive miraculously. Isaac was born of promise. It requires a supernatural work of God for a 90-year-old woman to give birth. Thus, the promise of salvation would attach not to Abraham's natural lineage, Ishmael, but to those born of the promise of the Spirit. It was going to connect to those walking in the promise of faith. Paul is saying here that the sons of Abraham are those who are born after a supernatural visitation from God. This foreshadows the rebirth of Christ. The entire genealogy of the Jewish people began with something akin to a virgin birth when the Most High overshadowed Mary and she had a son. The angel told Joseph, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. Likewise, those of us who are born of the Holy Spirit, join ourselves to that one seed, Christ Jesus, and thus become heirs of the same promise that was first made to Abraham and his spiritual lineage. While translated differently in the New Testament, the word heir and seed are actually the same word in Greek. To refer to someone as an heir or a descendant is the same as referring to them as the seed. Paul said in Galatians that Christ was Abraham's seed because he was born of the Spirit in the same manner as Isaac. But then he goes on to say, if you are Christ, or if you belong to Christ, then you, plural, are Abraham's seed. In essence, whenever there is a spiritual birth, the promise of Abraham is being fulfilled. Jesus is the ultimate expression of this spiritual birth. So whenever one is born of the Holy Spirit, they become partakers. They are baptized by one spirit into one body and thereby become part of the seed as an heir of God's promise. John says, whoever has been born of God does not sin. Why does he not sin? Because John says, God's seed abides in him. 
But hasn't John just said that we all sin? James suggests the same when he says that we all stumble in many ways. So what does John mean when he said he does not sin? Is he implying that children of God are incapable of failing? Was James wrong when he said we all stumble in many ways? Certainly not. John is simply pointing out that the believers have two competing natures at work inside. Christ in us never sins. When we fail, we have chosen to follow the wrong voice, the voice of the fallen nature who should be subject to Christ. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of or for righteousness. When we submit to that which is Christ in us and put to death that which is not Christ in us, then the seed inside of us keeps us from sinning. When we become one with the Spirit, we are part of the people toward whom all Abraham's promises were directed. We are part of Zion. When we sin, it is not the child of God that is sinning, because that which is born of God cannot sin. Instead, it is the other nature that is failing. We must keep that nature from taking the throne, or else we would have to say that sin has taken mastery over us again. It can be helpful to view covenants according to three main categories. First is the world and its covenant of death. Having rejected a covenant with God, they subject themselves to his judgment and wrath. The second category involves those who think they are in covenant with God based on his having elected them as an ethnic group through whom he would fulfill his promises. This would describe Israel in the days of Paul. They believe that God has chosen them and that to remain in the covenant, they merely need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Those who do that will be the collective group of people through whom God will bring salvation to the world and judge the nations, they believe. The third category comprises those who deny that the law can bring one into the right covenant relationship with God. They see that the purpose of the law was merely to show humans the sinfulness and filth of their own souls so that they might begin to long for a new birth in the Spirit. Those in this third category believe that only those who have experienced this new birth genuinely belong to Christ or are participating in the shared life in God, that is, the body of Christ. Abraham first tried to bring about God's promise through Hagar, through a work of his own hands, but God required that he die to that tendency. Instead, Abraham would have to place all his trust into God's spoken word and his promise to bring life from the dead, calling into existence that which was not. Abraham and Sarah had reached an age where the promised son could only come spiritually, not naturally. God is often waiting for us to acknowledge our incapacity before he will show himself to be capable on our behalf. This is where we finally exchange the futility of our own ambitions for the overcoming power of his word. But as Paul recounts in his letter to the Romans, Abraham chose to transfer his faith from his own flesh to the God who gives life to the dead and calls into being things that are not. Being not weak in faith, he did not consider his own body, although dead since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God, 
through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convicted that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. Romans 4, 17 through 21. In light of this, we come to understand what Paul meant in Galatians 3 when he said that the gospel was first preached to Abraham. The father of our faith took part in the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord in the sense that he reckoned with the end of his own flesh, buried his natural ambitions in Ishmael, and believed in the word of God that had a promise of new life to come. Those who follow in these same steps of faith are those who are born into the valid covenant that God has made with his people because it is no longer they who live, but Christ's seed now dwells inside them as they participate in his shared life among his people. It is in Jesus that all the promises to Abraham are fulfilled. There is no salvation outside of him. So the question becomes, how do I enter him? We must first die to the Ishmael within each of us, to the Hagar efforts that attempt to fulfill God's promises in our own strength and renounce our human works apart from God. We must profess with Abraham that when our body is as good as dead, we will believe in a supernatural birth. From there, we make a commitment, which is likened to circumcision. As stated, baptism is for the new covenant what circumcision was for the old. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, Paul writes, In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism. Therefore, we enter the saved life in Christ through repentance from Ishmael efforts and the reception of the seed that is Christ into our lives, and the immersion of baptism into that corporate context. In Acts 3, Peter proclaims Jesus as the fulfillment of the Mosaic prophecy, according to Deuteronomy 18, quote, For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. Acts 3.22. Indeed, there are clear parallels between Christ's ministry and the exodus of Moses that shed light on the plan for the salvation of Israel. The fact that Jesus is the fulfillment of of the shadows and forms that came through Abraham and Moses show us that Jesus does not appear in a void, but is continuing the salvation model started in antiquity, a model of corporate redemption and covenant relationship with God. Both Moses and Jesus were born at a time of oppression, specifically corresponding to a massacre of innocents at the hands of totalitarians. Miriam watched over Moses before being found by Pharaoh's daughter. Jesus was born to and watched over by Miriam, his mother. That's what the word is in Hebrew. Moses and Jesus both came out of Egypt. According to Matthew 2, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I have called my son. Noting that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy originally pertaining to corporate Israel, linking them to one another. Moses and Jesus both spent 40 days in the wilderness praying and fasting. 
Paul says the Israelite community was baptized into Moses through the cloud and through the sea. And Jesus provides believers entrance into the promised land, the kingdom of God, by being baptized into Jesus through the cloud of spirit baptism and through the sea of water baptism. Moses facilitated the miraculous provision of manna in the wilderness, whereas Jesus multiplied the loaves and fishes and said, I am the true bread who comes down out of heaven. John said, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Both Moses and Jesus had claims to royalty, but chose lives of humility among their people. Moses was sometimes rejected and doubted by his people. Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. There were 70 elders appointed to assist Moses while Jesus appointed 70 disciples and sent them out to work the works of God. Moses was used by God to liberate the Israelites from physical slavery. Jesus came to free humanity from the spiritual bondage of sin and the fear of death through which the devil holds all in bondage. After speaking with God, Moses' face shone with glory, which he veiled so that the children of Israel would not perish. Jesus' face also shone like the sun during his transfiguration. Upon the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus speaks with Moses and Elijah about his departure, which is literally his exodus. Moses gave the law, pointing to the need for a perfect sacrifice for sin in Leviticus 16. Jesus fulfilled the law and was the perfect sacrifice that the law pointed to. 3,000 souls died due to the sin of the golden calf when the law was given through Moses from the mountain. But 3,000 souls were spiritually made alive after spiritually repenting, joining the church when the Spirit was poured out on the day of Pentecost. Moses served as a mediator between God's angelic wrath and the people of Israel, often interceding on their behalf. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant, mediating between God and humanity. Moses endured the rejection and complaint of his people in the wilderness. Jesus endured rejection, suffering, and crucifixion. Moses gave the Israelites the sacrifice of the Passover lamb, whose blood would save them from death. Jesus is identified as the Passover lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus was put to death on the Passover and is called our Passover lamb. This is not a mere coincidence, but a prophetic fulfillment. As the promised seed, he was taken up on the mountain to be sacrificed. But unlike in the story of Abraham and Isaac, no lamb was substituted for him. He carried his own wood to the place of his own sacrifice. Moses descended from Sinai with tablets of stone bearing the law, a covenant of adherence to external regulations for the people of Israel. Jesus ascended into heaven and then descended as the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, which celebrated the giving of the law to inaugurate a new covenant internalized on human hearts and empowered by grace. What is the point of all this? It illustrates that Jesus did not come in a vacuum, but to validate and fulfill all the promises that had been made before him. 
There is much to be revealed about the true purpose of what Jesus accomplished when we consider the metaphorical and prophetic examples of the Old Testament. We see the doctrine of Christ in all these forms and representations of salvation prior to his coming. And if he is so tied to the past, then the same model of corporate salvation that God gave them, we also see in the coming of Christ. Jesus told his disciples, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Later, he clarifies that he himself is the bread of life. The manna from heaven was, in other words, a precursor to his coming. He continues, for I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. This takes us back to John 4, where the disciples came to Jesus and say to him, Rabbi, eat. He responds, I have food to eat that you do not know of. They seem confused. Has anyone brought him anything to eat? He says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Returning to John 6, we see Jesus saying, this is the will of the father who sent me that of all whom he has given me, I should lose none, but raise them up on the last day. So the will of God, according to Jesus, is to lay down his life to help save others. Simply put, the will of God is self-sacrificial love. Later in verse 50, Jesus says, This is the bread which comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. And now this is getting us closer to communion, the supper that breaks the bread and drinks the wine. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven, he said, so that one may eat it and not die. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh, is my body, literally. He is clearly speaking here of his sacrificial death. He proceeds from there to offend them greatly by saying, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. As uncomfortable as it may be for some, there are clear parallels between this passage and communion. The fruit of the vine is blood red, and the broken bread is to signify the slain body of Christ. Jesus purposefully chose this language so that they would be left with no choice but to interpret it spiritually. He clarifies this when he says, does this offend you? The words I speak to you are spirit and they are life. In other words, if they had listened to the words he spoke with spiritual ears, they would have understood. But with their natural mind, they couldn't help but visualize the natural implications of what he was saying instead of the spiritual. When serving communion, Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood. This is followed by the disciples eating the bread and drinking the wine. So every time we take communion, there is a sense in which we eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood. Communion is the supper that allows us to obey this injunction in John 6, which he says relates to our eternal life. In 1 John 1, 5 through 7, 
It says, this is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us. Let's stop there for a second. The word translated here as fellowship with one another is the Greek word koinonia. This is the very same word translated in multiple places throughout the New Testament as communion. Paul depicts communion as the fellowship of the body of Christ in 1 Corinthians 10.16. So what John is literally saying is if we walk in the light as Jesus is in the light, we have communion, we have koinonia fellowship. And he doesn't say that we have it with Jesus though that is undoubtedly true. But rather, he says we have this fellowship with one another, and as a result of that, the blood of forgiveness is cleansing. So, somehow, our relationship with God, our fellowship with God, brings us into communion with each other. One might have expected him to say that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with the Father. But that's not what he says. He says we have fellowship with one another. This would seem to indicate that what we are participating in is the shared life of God in his people. And that's the emphasis John makes in these passages. Whatever the darkness is, John likens it to a refusal to participate in this shared life. He finishes by saying, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The tense is important here. He does not say the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, has cleansed us from all sin. He says the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. John directly connects walking in the light with loving our brothers. So we have to have light in order to have fellowship, and we have to have fellowship with each other in order to have cleansing. Conversely, John likens walking in the darkness to hating our brothers. This theme of walking in the light calls to mind the proverb that says, the path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn shining ever brighter to the full light of day. And again, the way of the wicked, on the other hand, is marked by gloom and darkness for he does not know what makes him stumble proverbs 4:18 through 19 so those who follow the path of unfolding light are continually answering the increasing demands of love as they walk in the truth of god the original sin was suspicion this is how the devil as the serpent convinced eve to doubt god's motives the act of biting the apple was the result of the sin of suspicion The sin of suspicion is insidious because it tends to breed more suspicion and more distrust. Even after regretting their sin, when God calls to them in the garden, Adam and Eve do not respond by running from the shadows and saying, Oh God, help us. Their response is to hide behind fig leaves because the sin of suspicion breeds more suspicion. We see this same suspicion take on an even greater manifestation in Cain's murder of Abel. 
when we begin distrusting others' motives and can no longer trust their love, when we become convinced that they are only out for themselves, we envy and eventually hate them. This hatred leads to murder. This is why John says in his epistle that whoever hates his brother is a murderer. Such a person walks in darkness, John says, and does not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded their eyes. So, in our first passage from 1 John, he says, If we walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and we have the cleansing of the blood. And we're asking, what is this light? Well, it's the truth, but it's also walking free of suspicion, walking with the illumination that shows our brother as the object of our love. So John can say, whoever does not love his brother abides in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. I believe this darkness to be the veil that lies over human hearts, the veil of distrust and suspicion, whether toward Christ or his church. So that means that the light can be seen as that which overcomes suspicion and rightly views our brothers as the objects of our love and the sources of our love in our lives. Likewise, through the light of love, we see the body of Christ as it really is. We finally see our brothers as those we love and whom we can trust. Not that we trust in their perfection, but that the light has made love possible despite human imperfections. We've seen the connection between the words light, fellowship, communion, and cleansing. The English word communion is derived from a Latin term meaning the exchange of gifts. In light of this, is it any coincidence that the Apostle Paul's seminal teaching on communion, 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, occurs in the two chapters leading up to his seminal teaching on spiritual gifts, 1 Corinthians 12. He warns the Corinthians against the ignorance with which they walked as pagans, being blinded, led astray by mute idols. Then he makes it clear that Christ's lordship in their lives would become real only when they begin to receive that lordship through the spiritual gifts of their brothers and sisters. I'm speaking from 1 Corinthians 12 here. In other words, Paul portrays an environment wherein brothers and sisters in Christ spiritually feed and nourish one another, bringing us back to the idea of communion, of a koinonia, of fellowship, of a supper. To summarize, when we walk in the light... We do not hate our brother. We love our brother. Our suspicion is dispelled and we begin to see the body as both the object and source of our wholeness and love. This fosters an exchange of gifts through which the blood of Jesus is applied to our sins as love covers a multitude of transgressions. This is not to diminish the atoning sacrifice of Christ, which has been settled once for all, but that cleansing blood was intended to be applied through the exchange of God's word and his forgiveness among brothers. That exchange would never be possible without the gospel and Christ's work. Through our burial in the likeness of his death, we lay to rest self-preservation and self-interest coming into that greater design of his body, 
where we can begin to pour out our lives for the sake of others. As we come increasingly under the burden of love and are reborn of his spirit, his seed, we start to discover our purpose in life. In John's words, we know where we are going. The darkness no longer blinds our eyes. Our purpose is to give corporate expression to God's agape love and manifold wisdom within the context of his redeemed people. Is this not what Peter was referring to when he said, Above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins? 1 Peter 4, 8. This connects directly to John's theme of the blood of Jesus cleansing us from every sin through the expression of fervent love for and fellowship with one another. But he goes on even further to say, As each of you have received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it with the ability that God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Christ Jesus, to whom belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Paul uses the same terminology in Colossians. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you must also do. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. This is the context in which we are being perfected as we walk in the light. Paul continues, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, in all wisdom, teaching, admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts of the Lord. Here again, we see an emphasis on the gifts of God coming and bringing grace in various forms. Paul concludes, and whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name or authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. In light of all this, we see that walking in God's light brings about fellowship. But what is God's light? It's the ability to have the suspicion removed and to see for the first time our purpose to love our brothers. So walking in God's light brings about fellowship, communion with each other and Him. The light we must walk in is the epiphany of love that removes the veil of original Cain-like suspicion and reveals our brothers and sisters as the object and source of our love. This reciprocal love is demonstrated through the exchange of grace through spiritual gifts. This is the essence of our fellowship life. This is our communion. In John 8, Jesus tells a group of Jews who believed in him, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. However, the tense here is actually better rendered as, If you continue in my word, then you are truly my disciples, and you will be knowing the truth, and the truth will be setting you free. The grammar clarifies that it's only to the extent that we continue in his word, that we increasingly come to know the truth and are increasingly set free. 
The Jews didn't appreciate the implication of this, and so they retorted, We are Abraham's descendants, seed, and have never been enslaved to anyone. Jesus responds, Everyone who sins is a slave to sin. What Jesus is emphasizing here is that we all possess a fallen nature. We will never truly escape our faults and failures in this life. But we must realize ever-increasing victory over them. Those with diabetes are, in some sense, slaves to that condition. They will ultimately die with it, if not from it. But if they take the antidote of insulin, they will be capable of taking dominion over their condition. Similarly, our slavery to sin is an ongoing condition. The only way to escape comes through accepting an ongoing antidote God's cleansing word through the body of Christ. Ultimately, Jesus is saying the same thing as John when he says that our walk in the light gives us fellowship with brothers and sisters and the blood cleanses us. Continue in that word which comes through our brothers and sisters, gives us fellowship with them, joining us with his disciples. As this ongoing walk unfolds, we can increasingly say, I am not a slave to sin because I am living in fellowship with a group of believers who continually bring God's word, God's grace, God's light, God's fellowship, God's gifts into my life. This echoes Paul's words in Ephesians 5, where he compares the covenant between Christ and his body to a marriage between a husband and a wife, referencing the washing with water of the word a clear metaphor for baptism, but also the ongoing application of cleansing truth through the body to the body. The symbolism of the water suggests not just a one-time cleansing, but a commitment to a context where that washing is expected to continue. As Jesus said, you are already clean because of the word I have spoken. And that is the same word Paul commands us to apply to one another. Let each of you speak truth with his neighbor. None of this is to deny or diminish the absolute necessity of a powerful encounter with the living God by each and every individual by which we experience a revelation of God's love in contrast to the bankruptcy of our nature. Such an encounter sets us free from self and births us into a relationship with God by which sin no longer has mastery over us. This experience marks a moment in which something radically changes inside of us as God's word finds home in our heart. As a result of such an encounter, sin does not have the same degree of control over us as before. Instead, we become slaves to righteousness. But this must then be lived out within a discipling context. The light must continue. The word must continue. The grace must continue. The forgiveness must continue. The blood must continue. The eating of his flesh and drinking of his blood must continue for this eternal life to continue. The only way to grow into light is to grow into love. The only way to grow into love is if we are no longer isolated individuals. In the context of Christ's body, we begin to experience the demands of love. Whatever remains in us that is hostile toward love will be put to death by the ongoing nourishment that comes through our brothers and sisters. So repentance ends the tyranny of sin, yet this repentance must be walked out with others. 
This is why Jesus, after washing the disciples' feet on the night of communion, asked, Do you understand what I have done for you? He was not just washing the dirt off their feet, but was communicating something much deeper about the need for brothers to wash brothers with the word. He was acknowledging that while they were ostensibly clean through baptism, their feet were contaminated by the world. Yet if they failed to plant themselves in an environment where their brothers continually cleansed the filth of that world, they would be prone to fall back into the filth from which they were washed in baptism. How often do you find something lurking in your heart, exposed by a brother confronting you, or by a preached word from the pulpit, and you suddenly say, I see it. It's usually not very flattering to our flesh. In this sense, Paul says, everything exposed by the light becomes visible, or a better translation says, whatever makes visible is light. In these scenarios, the word of your brothers brings the light of truth, which makes your sin visible, and thus its remedy actionable. Similarly, the psalmist said, the unfolding of your word gives light. Psalms 119, 130. Now a word on forgiveness. The New Testament word for forgiveness refers to canceling a debt or relieving someone of a burden. Specifically, one Greek word for forgiveness, ephemi, means to leave or abandon, often about unpaid debts. It implies letting go or dropping something. Meanwhile, the Old Testament word for forgiveness, hanan and kasa, mean to show gracious mercy and, quote, to cover and conceal, respectively. Psalms 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Another New Testament word for forgive is charisma, which conveys giving a gift, to give graciously. In fact, charis, grace, and the gifts of the Spirit, charismata, are tied to this same word, charisma. And this denotes the idea that the cleansing of forgiveness comes through the gifts of the body, the gifts of the Spirit, ministered, the exchange of gifts that is the lived communion. Jesus depicts forgiveness as, quote, unbinding or loosing in Matthew 18 and 18. See also John 20, 23. Luke's gospel emphasizes that repentance is a prerequisite for forgiveness, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Jesus outlines a clear sequence here. First, we look to ourselves. Second, we perceive our brother's transgression. Third, we rebuke him. And if he repents, fourth, we forgive him. If we fail to engage in any of these steps, searching our own hearts, perceiving needs in others, confronting those sins, and forgiving, we disregard Christ's explicit instruction and face the peril of judgment, where the Father may withhold from us 
the very forgiveness we denied others. Quote, For if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Matthew six fourteen through 15 Returning to the definition of the New Testament's word for forgiveness, which involves leaving and abandoning, we must acknowledge that forgiving requires us to relinquish our hold on something that we could benefit from in an awful sort of way. This also entails distancing ourselves from the issue in question because it means, quote, abandoning it as a thing of the past and releasing it so that we need not revisit it again on the condition that true repentance has been demonstrated. The Arabic word for forgive shares the same root with the term free, deepening our understanding of sin as a form of debt, placing us under the power of our creditors. Unscrupulous individuals may prefer to keep others indebted to them, reveling in the semblance of control as they maliciously remind or cast up fully repented transgressions. However, the Bible presents a model of forgiveness to emulate, assuring us that God will remember our sins no more in Hebrews 8.12. Indeed, God's promise is to cast our transgressions into the depths of the sea, the sea of his forgetfulness, as shown in Micah 7.19. If God can abandon, if God can walk away, we must forgive by abandoning and walking away. In Isaiah 43.25, he says, I, even I am he, who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and remembers your sins no more. Why do we hesitate to release another from the shackles of their past wrongs? Why do we resist immersing those repented and forsaken sins in the sea of God's forgetfulness? There lies within us a nefarious extortioner afraid of losing leverage over others, blind to the reality that such dominance only serves to divide and alienate us from the very love we seek. In stark contrast, the only power truly worth possessing is mercy and forgiveness. When we use the recollection and condemnation of others' faults to manipulate or control them, we resemble Satan, not Christ. Satan himself twists even God's law as a tool to separate us from God's presence, from the sanctuary of, of our Father's grace, forgiveness, and empowerment. But Jesus nailed to the cross the written code with its regulations that were against us and opposed to us. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus links the act of forgiveness with liberation from the grip of Satan. Forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. The connection between a reluctance to forgive and vulnerability to temptation becomes more explicit when we consider Paul's admonition to the Corinthian church. In his first letter, 
He reproves their misguided leniency that tolerated the persistent sin of an unrepented member. Yet in his second epistle, Paul urges them to forgive and reaffirm their love for the repentant individual, telling them that if they don't, they will be taken advantage of by the devil. He does not want them to be outwitted by the devil. This is a sobering caution to a church rightly vigilant to root out sin. If we disregard the scriptural counsel in Galatians 6.1 to gently restore those caught in sin, we risk warping the genuine burden of love into a divisive tool that could ravage the church's unity. Paul expresses concern not only for the church's hesitation to discipline, but even more for the church's reluctance to forgive following genuine repentance. This hesitance, he warns, makes them vulnerable to the cunning deceptions of the evil one, makes them vulnerable to being outwitted by Satan, quote unquote. So in Colossians 3, he says, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Who shall we emulate? the one who thrives on faults, the accuser of the brethren who slandered Joshua the high priest in Zechariah 3, or should we emulate the one who binds up our wounds, releases our transgressions, and sets us free through his boundless mercy? God, help us to lift the burdens from our brothers and sisters back. Aid us in extending the mercy that cancels debts and remembers them no more. Empower us to shun the serpent of extortion that exploits repented faults for nefarious control. Lead us away from the behavior that aligns us with the enemy's tactics and toward the one who, even while crucified, forgave his accusers, prayed for his executioners, and embodied compassion and love in a world ensnared by anger, bitterness, unforgiveness, and the sway of Satan. Is it any coincidence that communion was first enacted on the night of Passover? Traditionally, Passover was the feast of unleavened bread during which they would search the house to ensure not a single trace of leaven remained. Paul states in Romans 12, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. For I say through the grace given to me to everyone that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. He then talks about spiritual gifts and their various functions. Concluding with this, he says, Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Next, he makes this statement, Let love be without hypocrisy. This is the leaven that we must search our homes to rid before we can take the Passover communion. 
How do we prove that our lives are without hypocrisy? By a willingness to use our gifts, not to exalt ourselves, but to participate in the communion of exchanging truth for truth, grace for grace, love for love, and forgiveness for forgiveness. If God places a burden on our hearts for a need we can meet in someone else's life, and we withhold that gift, how can we claim the love of God abides in us? If the Lord reveals to me that my brother is battling for faith and he gives me a word in a meeting and I do not speak it, how can I assert that the love of God abides in me? So it is no wonder that Paul says about the gifts, let us use them, and then immediately says, let love be without hypocrisy. Recall when Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. The Pharisees were icons of hypocrisy having a form of godliness, but lacking a loving relationship with others. So if we are to have an unleavened loaf, then we must purge it of the hypocrisy, of the self-preserving pride that stymies and suffocates love in the body. Paul says in Ephesians 4, that when Christ ascended, he gave gifts unto men. He continues to describe some of these gifts as those of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. These gifts, he explains, were given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, as they speak the truth in love, quote-unquote. This truth exchanged among our brothers and sisters as they operate in their gifts is what will set us free. How is this so? As truth is spoken in love, men and women become better equipped to discern with greater clarity the impure motives of their own hearts. As the light of his word shines brighter, bringing greater visibility and clarity, these issues can be more accurately identified and addressed. And this is another way that we walk in the light and thus have fellowship and thus get cleansed. My father used to say, we're called to die daily and we're called to crucify our own flesh. Yet he would point out, you can take the hammer of God's word and nail in both feet, perhaps even one hand, but what about the hand swinging the hammer? It is at that point that we must turn to our brother and say, will you drive this nail in too? We cannot afford to be lax. We must do our part to apply the word of God to ourselves and putting to death the body of sin, but there will always be that one hand unbound, unnailed. And so we must say to the body of Christ, I do not recognize you according to the flesh. I see the love of Jesus in you. Please drive the nail in. Now a word on discerning the body. In 1 Corinthians 11, 28, Paul says, let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. So for Paul, one's inability to examine himself assumes he has not properly discerned the Lord's body. How might this be? He said there were factions and divisions among them, and therefore whatever they were doing, he said, was not the Lord's supper, even though they were doubtlessly assuming it was. Paul is not encouraging them here to simply remember Jesus. 
he is suggesting that the divisions among them disqualify them from being true expressions of Christ. He is suggesting that if there are factions, they are not discerning Christ and one another. They are not discerning the Lord's body. But if they would examine themselves, perhaps they would more rightly discern what was causing the divisions, a loss of faith, and thereby discern the Lord's body. In his previous chapter, Paul says, The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not a communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not a communion of the body of Christ? For we, though many, are one bread and one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Here we see again a reference to the body of Christ as one loaf of bread. He is not speaking here of Christ individually on the cross, but corporately in the church. Returning to John 6, where we started, we recall again how Jesus' reference to eating his flesh and drinking his blood was a prerequisite for eternal life. Everyone who turns away, responding, this is a hard statement, who can understand it, is not going to be part of the life of God. Jesus turned to the twelve and asks, does this offend you? Peter then offers a confession that essentially confirms his discernment of the Lord's body in its individual expression. He says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter is properly discerning that I must stay in relationship. I've got to stay connected to love. As I walk further down the path, I will understand better than I do, but I'm staying the course. Discerning the body, then, is the prerequisite for readiness to take communion. This entails proper discernment of the people with whom God has placed us in his corporate community. It means that we begin to see that place as where we are confronted where we are forgiven, where his blood is washing us, and where his light is shining. It is where our relationship with God becomes real and is sustained. Why is this so important to see? Because it is in that context that the sin bringing judgment is removed from us. Consider the first communion. Did anyone drink judgment on themselves that night? Paul's worried that the Corinthians are going to drink judgment if they don't discern the Lord's body. But what about at the first communion? Did anyone drink judgment on themselves that night? They certainly did. It was the judgment that Judas, the son of perdition, drank to himself. He no longer discerned what God was doing. But what is so powerful and revelatory is that when Jesus proclaims the betrayal that is in the room, we don't see the 11 saying, not me, not me. Instead, we see all of them, one after another, saying, Lord, is it I? Is there something in me that is putting to death the Lord Jesus afresh tonight? Lord, is there any unbroken will? Is it I? This is the question all of us should be asking. This is the examination Paul is later speaking of. The assumption that says, Lord, it couldn't be I, is not the communion spirit. The question that says, is it I, that is the attitude the apostles had and which we must also adopt. Let that process of examination end with the Lord saying, No, 
you're still part of my body. You're not the piece that's been cut off from the loaf and smeared with butter and honey for your own enjoyment. You're still part of the one loaf. You're not the uncrushed kernel, the uncrushed grape. Let us not preserve our individuality apart from the body. Let us lose ourselves into that one lump, literally the one loaf that he is and that we are partaking of. And let us examine ourselves and say, is there judgment in me? Is there unbelief? Look at Judas and the judgment that was at work when the woman broke the alabaster jar. How easily we can take on that same attitude in the body of Christ today. We say things like, I think that money could have been spent differently. Notice that he doesn't speak honestly or say, I think that that money could have been given to me, even though we know from John that that is exactly why he said it. Instead, he cloaks his greed under the appearance of concerns about the proper use of funds in the church. No, he veiled his self-interest as a concern for the poor. God, search our hearts. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, which is to say, unless you partake of Christ in human form and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. We must feed and nourish one another with God's word, with the true life of the body, which is the bread, the one loaf. We must forgive each other. We must give each other the grace of the Holy Spirit. We must discern the Lord's body in this way and thus partake of the wine, the blood that cleanses. We must remove the veil of suspicion, of self-seeking, the spirit of Cain, and walk in the light that leads to this fellowship of true communion. I want to be part of one people, one bride. I want to be mixed into one loaf with no uncrushed kernels. I want to become so one with God's people that we can become that pure expression of the one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Communion is the celebration of the reality that we live daily, and it should not be partaken of until we can claim with conviction that in all our daily relationships, this veil is lifted, the light is shining, we discern the Lord's body, we recognize no one according to the flesh. Instead, we see Zion as the city of light where the blood is cleansing and the grace is nourishing. Without an adequate understanding of the reality of the communion supper and what it is intended to celebrate, we become false. Even if innocent in our confusion, we become like mere children conducting a pretend wedding in the backyard. We may be saying the very words that the adults say when they get married, but we have no understanding in our hearts. And so our words are empty and unbinding. Though God may overlook such ignorance for a season, we need to understand that communion is recommitting ourselves to say, Lord, I discern your body. I live in the light of unsuspicious love. I have the exchange of gifts 
and grace with my brothers and sisters. I still see what you did and how that's being applied. I still see my guilt and I still see the part that I'm commissioned to play in loving without hypocrisy. In conclusion, in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul concludes his passage on communion by stating that God has composed the body and appointed each member as he sees fit. Part of discerning the body involves recognizing that we do not get to choose our place in it or determine where we fit. God has a plan and a design. Paul goes on to explain that because God has ordained his body, the eye cannot declare to the hand, I don't need you. Similarly, the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you either. Although Christ is the head, he is somehow making use of us feet here on earth and he needs us. Paul continues and says, but God composed the body having given greater honor to that part which lacks it so that there should be no division in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, every member suffers with it. We are called to be one people. When we remain an individual grape in his own skin, or a single kernel of wheat in our own protective defensive skin, we cannot look at other grains and say, that's so-and-so's fault, or that's his problem. Yet once we are crushed and blended together, losing any individual identity and adopting the view that we are one, we realize this is us. If he has a problem, it's my problem. If I have a problem, they all have a problem. Thus, we each have this responsibility not to be the leaven in the lump while simultaneously having a duty to purge the leaven in others as we see it, because we are in this together. We need each other. That is what we are reaffirming when we take that bread and wine and declare, we are in this together. Jesus did this for us. If he loved me like that, I must love you in the same way. As John said, if he loved us in that way, shouldn't we love one another? Jesus introduced the concept of remembering and tied it directly to communion. Typically, this word means to recollect or think about something again, bringing to mind a past event. However, for the Hebrews, the Lord's instruction in the Ten Commandments was to remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. For them, remembering the Sabbath did not mean recalling former Sabbaths, from thousands of years prior, but it meant actively observing and living out the Sabbath themselves. Similarly, during communion, we remember what Jesus did for us, yes, but we also actively embody that same love, that same exchange of gifts and grace, that same forgiveness that same wine and bread, word and life of the Spirit. May God help us all with this in mind.